And Lord, as we now come to your word, we come asking to be fed. We come asking that you would nourish the depths of our souls with your word. We pray that you would destroy any confidence we have in ourselves and that you would teach us, O Lord, to put our confidence entirely in Christ. We pray that you would draw us closer to Christ today, that we may taste and see that you are good. We pray, O Lord, that your word would do your work in us, that it would go forth in power and clarity, that we would understand by the power and the help of the Holy Spirit working within us and give us conviction to apply it to our lives. We pray, O Lord, for our children. We pray that they would hear your word and that they would bury it and store it deep in their hearts. We pray, O Lord, that in your time you would save them. Please, O Lord, for the glory of Christ and for the advancement of your kingdom on earth, we pray that you would save our children. And we pray, O Lord, that you would sanctify us with your word. In areas where we may have questions or doubts, we pray that you would help our unbelief. Teach us, O Lord, with your word and feed us with your word, that we may look to Christ, call on his name, and be saved. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, Psalm 34. Uh, The first Sunday of every month we do a psalm, and this month we are in Psalm 34. The bystander effect. You have probably heard of the bystander effect. It's that thing that happens when somebody needs help in broad daylight. Maybe they're attacked in broad daylight, or maybe they they slip and fall and injure themselves right in front of other people, and they, they call out to others for help, and people just keep on going, or they just look. And if you get on YouTube these days, you can find countless videos of people who are doing just this. They're sitting there with their phones videoing somebody who needs help, and they're just sitting there with their phones getting video of the whole situation. This seems unbelievable to us, doesn't it? From a distance, it seems crazy that people would know that there's somebody who needs help. They would hear those cries for help, and yet they would just keep on going. Uh, It it stunned me so much the first time I read about this effect, this phenomenon. I actually remember the first time I read about it. It was in 1991. Uh, I was in my first sociology class in college. I, I just couldn't believe that people would not help someone, even a woman who was in need. It, it just blew my mind, and it really challenged some of the presuppositions that I had about people. But one study after another after another, they have demonstrated that this effect, the bystander effect, is almost always caused by the same thing. It's not that people don't hear the cries for help. They do hear the cries for help. But what happens is they assume that because there are so many other people present, they assume that somebody else is going to be the one to lend a hand. 
And so with that in mind, actually, the, the higher uh, the number of people who are present when somebody cries out for help, the less likely it is that any help will be offered. Bystanders, they'll be aware of the fact that there is somebody who has a need, but they figure that somebody else is going to do something about it, and they probably have some place or something that they're going to do. Uh, and so they carry on with their busy day instead of interrupting their schedule to save somebody's life or to to help somebody. So the bad news here is that if you're ever in need of immediate help and you're in a very public place where a lot of people are present, the odds of somebody helping aren't very high. Um, If you break down with a, a flat tire on a road where there are thousands of people driving by, the odds of you having somebody stop to help you are a lot lower than if you're on a very lonely country road where only 20 people a day drive by. Uh, There, people are more likely to help because they figure nobody else is going to help you. But the good news is that for God's people, it is never, ever like this with God. God is never, ever a bystander in the lives of His children. He is active. He is present. He is Working. In fact, he is always at work, causing all things to work for his glory and for our good. What do you do with that, though? What do you do with that knowledge, knowing that God is causing all things, every circumstance in your life, to work not only for his glory, but for your good? What do you do with that? If you really believe that that's what God is doing, if you really believe that God has redeemed you from the fires of hell, if you really believe that every situation you face, God is using it to conform you to the image of Christ, how do you respond? What do you do with that? There's a story in Luke's Gospel of a time when Jesus was passing between the regions of Galilee and Samaria. And Luke writes this, starting in chapter 17, verse 12. He says, as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. That's what you were supposed to do when you were cleansed from leprosy. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? The response to understanding what God has done for us and is doing for us even presently should be gratitude. It should be gratitude. But what this story illustrates, us, uh, illustrates for us is that every single one of us has this natural propensity, a natural tendency to just keep going instead of stopping to say thank you. We have a propensity to be ungrateful by nature. And as we continue our study in the Psalms for our first Sunday of the month series, we now come to a Psalm which shows us that David was like that one leper who returned to give thanks and to give glory to God for what God had done for him. 
David wrote Psalm 34 as a song of thanksgiving unto God. In this case, for a very specific uh, instance in his life in which God rescued him from a situation uh, that David could not have saved himself in. So the point of this psalm is important even though it's very simple and it should be self-evident. It should be completely obvious. It's this. Christians should praise God with thankful hearts in response to all He has done for them. Christians should praise God with thankful hearts in response to all that He has done for them. So you might be asking, well, what is this situation in David's life that this psalm is written in response to? Well, if you look at the first half of verse 1, you will see, you'll see that it tells us about this situation. It gives us a hint. It says, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. This serves as actually the title for the psalm, but it also sets the context for the psalm. It tells us why this psalm was even written. As a warrior himself, David surely would have known uh, the tactic in which one feigns weakness. That, that's a common tactic. That's a tactic that you can, you can look up. It, it's, it's one that you use in sports sometimes. It's, it's a legitimate strategy. But feigning madness, uh, feigning insanity, that's kind of a unique strategy. When did David do this? Well, we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 to 15. It says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Ashish king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Ashish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And then we read in verse 1 of the next chapter, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adjalam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Now the question that you might be asking now is probably something along the lines of, okay, so David feigned insanity or feigned madness with Ashish king of Gath, but when did he use that strategy with somebody named Abimelech? And that's a good question to be asking. But the answer is that sometimes Abimelech is a proper name, somebody's actual name. For example, in Judges chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, uh, we read of one of Gideon's sons. It says, Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. What we need to understand is that the name Abimelech is sometimes an actual name, but sometimes it's a title. Uh, It means uh, father of the king, or my father is king. So for that reason, it would often be a title that would be used to designate 
a Philistine prince or a Philistine king. Uh, so in this sense, it's kind of similar to uh, you know, the pharaohs of Egypt or the Caesars of Rome. Uh, are those real names? Sure, uh, but those are also titles. So that's probably what this is referring to. Abimelech is just referring to the fact that this was a king uh, and that David feigned weakness in front of this king. So it's almost certainly, uh, almost certainly, a reference to Ashish, king of Gath. Now you might remember, if you've studied First and Second Samuel, that David once defeated a mighty warrior from Gath on the battlefield. Uh, his victory over Goliath of Gath is record, recorded only a few chapters prior to that passage in which David is found uh, before the presence of uh, Ashish. Um, the story progresses into chapter 18. After David has defeated Goliath, we learn that, uh, that God continued to give David victory over the enemies of Israel and that David uh, ended up killing many Philistines on the battlefield. And then we read this in chapter 18, verses 6 and 7 of 1 Samuel. It says, It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and, says, and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And all these servants of Ashish king of Gath heard them singing this. That's how loud it was. That's how widespread this singing was. But this was not singing Saul's praises. This was really singing David's praises. And you might guess that that was sort of like pouring salt in an open wound for Saul, who was a very proud man and who became jealous at this point to the point of outrage where he started seeking to murder David. And so David had to run for it. And he did. And as he ran for it, he was chased into the region of Gath, where it doesn't take long before people start recognizing him as the one who had not only taunted Goliath of Gath on the battlefield, but who had very quickly defeated Goliath on the battlefield. And so, in fear of being identified by the king, he feigned madness. He pretended like he was just a lunatic, right? That he was crazy, hoping to convince the Philistines and their king that he really couldn't be that same guy out on the battlefield who seemed pretty sane and pretty tough. No, this guy is a madman, is what he was hoping they would think. Now you might say, okay, that's a, that's a great story. It sounds like David did a really good job of taking care of business by himself. He came up with this brilliant strategy and God didn't really need to do anything here. It was, it was entirely David. But that isn't even remotely true or accurate. In David's mind, he knew and he was struck with the fact that he could do nothing for himself in the situation in which he found himself. He, he had cried out to prayer, out in prayer to God, and God responded. God wasn't like a bystander who just keeps on going. No, he wasn't figuring that, that somebody else would take care of David's crisis. No, God answered David by saving him from his enemies on both sides. 
On one side, it's the Philistines. On the other side, it's Saul and his men. David was trapped. And David knew it. He knew that he was going to die if God did not intervene. So he cried out to God. And God answered David by saving him from his enemies on both sides. David, in his mind... And what we need to understand is that David gets no glory or praise for escaping. God alone gets the glory. And so this psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving for that specific instance in David's life when God intervened and saved him. Now, you might think that it's kind of crazy that I would spend this much time setting the context for this psalm But the context for this psalm is absolutely critical to understanding the psalm in its entirety. We have to understand that everything that we have, even our very next breath, it's all a gift from God. And that because humanity by nature is incapable of doing anything good, or anything pleasing to God, if anything good is found in us, for example, faith, for example, the fruit of the Spirit, for example, repentance, if anything good is found in us, it's not from us. It's the work of God that has wrought these things in us. Shouldn't we be thankful for these things that God has used to save us? If everything that we have, including our salvation, and every day that we live, if all of this is a gift from God, should we not be content with what we have and thankful? Of course we should be. Of course we should be. Every struggle, every trial, can we even be thankful for those things? Especially those things. Why? Because we learn best in those situations. You learn things when you're in a trial or when you're in distress or when you are brought low that you don't learn up high. And so we can thank God for those times when He brings us low. David recognized that the fact that he was saved from capture, saved from humiliation, saved from certain death, it was entirely God's work. Even though on the surface it might have looked and felt like It was David's brilliance that saved the day for him. David had a different outlook on life. He knew that God was sovereign over life and death and that if he were to live another day, it wasn't because of his brilliance. It wasn't because he was a a tough dude or a smart dude. No, it was because God had intervened to save him. Do you have that same outlook on life? That God is sovereign over life and death? That everything that we have is a gift from God? The context of this psalm reminds us that surely Christians should praise God with thankful hearts in response to all He has done for them. And what has He done for us? Everything. Everything. Everything that we have is a gift We can neither boast, therefore, nor can we glory in anything. All glory belongs to God. 
So now that we've established the context of this psalm, let's look at David's response to the deliverance that he experienced as he records it in this psalm. The way that this psalm is structured is as a Hebrew acrostic, which just means that each verse starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there are really two main reasons that... um, that the the psalmist would write this way. The first was to facilitate memorization. If you can go through the Hebrew alphabet, you you memorize each one of these verses as you're going through. Uh, The second reason is to show the perfection of it, meaning there was nothing extra that needed to be added to it. So the psalm begins with a proclamation. Let's look at the second part of verse 1 through verse 3. David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Now you see, as you look at this, that there is a progression that's going outward. David starts with himself. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. And by the way, this is the goal of every child of God, of every Christian, to praise the Lord at all times, to bless the name of the Lord at all times. Now, you might think about that and say, well, that seems like kind of an unrealistic goal. But here's the thing, the more a person experiences God, the more attainable this goal is. So whether on this side of glory or that side of glory, the day is coming when we will experience God in His presence continually forever. So at some point, this will be true. But we should see the name that David uses for God here. It's a name that reflects the reality of the relationship that David has with God. You'll see in your Bibles that the name Lord is all in capital letters right there, which indicates every time you see that, every time you see it that it's all in capital letters, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. And that is God's covenant name. Yahweh is God's covenant name. When we're, when we're talking about God and His covenants, we remember that God is faithful, always faithful to His covenants. Those He has purposed to save. Those He has, by grace, called effectually, bringing them under His covenant of grace by means of faith. God is faithful to save. And that's why David refers to God as Lord with all capitals here, as Yahweh in this context. The reason God saved him faithfully was because God is a God of covenants. David's praise begins here. begins with himself, his own mouth, his own heart, his own mind, his own soul. But look at what David says in the second half of verse 2. He says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. So this is an invitation for the people of God to join him, to join David in praising God for his goodness and for his faithfulness. David is issuing a call to worship, inviting all the saints around him to join him in lifting up and exalting the greatness and the glory of God. 
Anyone who was humble enough to listen was welcome to join him in worshiping and praising the Lord with him. Friends, God is worthy of all praise. He's worthy of praise and thanksgiving from our lips and of obedience from our lives. David's words are good news to God's people throughout the ages, even until this very day, because they direct the person who has been brought low. They direct the person who has been humbled, the person whose spirit has been crushed and who feels no strength within themselves. It invites them to come behold the Lord, to come and taste and see that the Lord is good, as David will say here in just a moment. This directs such a person, the humble person, to the one true source of hope and strength. David sets just a wonderful example for us here, showing us that the person who loves and fears the Lord is never content to worship and praise God alone. Rather, He wants to be joined by God's people. He wants the people of God to join Him in exalting God's name in unison in order that God's name may be magnified. And this is what happens every single week as we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship God by singing praises together. He is magnified. His name is magnified. That doesn't mean that God is made bigger. It doesn't mean that God is made more glorious. No, He's already infinitely great in size and in goodness and in glory. Uh, No, what it means is it's like taking the greatness of God and putting it under a microscope or a magnifying glass. A magnifying glass doesn't change the shape uh, or change anything about the object being perceived. What it does is it makes the object being perceived more observable, which is what Sunday is what we do on Sunday when we gather. So David's desire is to bring the salvation, the deliverance that he experienced to the people of God in order that together they could rejoice with him because of what God had done to save him from certain death. And our desire, friends, our desire should be the same. To join with the people of God in singing God's praises. It's wonderful to desire to thank and praise God on an individual level, but it is more powerful and more moving when God's people come together in unison, corporately, to thank and to praise God for what He has done for us. This desire is actually what should drive not only worship, but it should also drive evangelism. So next, David tells us why he has this desire. Let's look at verses 4-7. to David continues, writing, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So in these verses, David recalls the predicament that he found himself in, which led to him escaping the wrath of King Ashish of Gath. David was 
filled with fear as he was brought before the king, and what did he do about it? He sought the Lord. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered him by delivering him, he says, from all his fears. Now you can see that there's a parallel between verses 4 and 6. Verse 4 says, I I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and that's paralleled in verse 6, where David says, this poor man cried. He's referring to himself here as a poor man. He says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. Now that might seem a little bit confusing, because... I mean, where else do you find David referring to himself as being poor? I mean, uh, he was a wealthy guy. He, he was a king. Uh, but that's exactly how David is referring to himself here. He doesn't mean, we should, we should understand then, he doesn't mean that he was financially poor. Rather, this is actually, this word poor is actually the same word that was just translated humble back in verse 2. So he was just referring to the fact that he had been brought low. His spirit had been crushed. He was at a point of despair. He had been humbled and had nothing and nobody that could save him from what was unquestionably certain death. Nothing and nobody except the Lord, except Jehovah. So we learned something very interesting about what happened here because in talking about how he was delivered, he says this. He says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So here's the question. David first says that it was the Lord himself who rescued David, but then he says that it was the angel of the Lord. Now you might be asking, okay, so which is it? Was it God, or was it the angel of the Lord? That's a good question, and the answer is both. Both. What a careful study of Scripture will reveal is that almost every single time we see that title, that, that, that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it almost always, almost always refers to a manifestation of God Himself. Now let's take that a little bit further. Because the Scriptures also very clearly tell us in John's Gospel, no one has seen God, referring to the Father, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, referring to Jesus, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's from John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. So what John is saying here is that Jesus is the only physical manifestation of God that human beings have ever seen. But what does that tell us then about the angel of the Lord who appears numerous times throughout the Old Testament Scriptures and who is often worshipped and who here is given credit for His salvation in the same breath that God is given credit for His salvation? What it tells us is that the angel of the Lord was almost always Jesus. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. See, Jesus isn't just somebody who shows up in the New Testament. He's not the, the second person of the Trinity isn't absent in the Old Testament. You, you see the Father in the Old Testament. You see the Spirit in the Old Testament. Where's the Son? The Son is almost always the angel of the Lord. That's why sometimes we see the angel of the Lord accepting worship from God's people. No no mere angel 
would ever, ever receive worship from a person. We actually see an angel rebuke John the Apostle for, uh, in a time when, when John tried to do this. We read of an encounter that John had with an angel in Revelation 19.10 where John writes this. He says, Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So here's what David is saying. The same God who saved him and who was near to him and who encamped around him would deliver anyone who would call upon his name. As the prophet Joel would write, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So who will call on the Lord? Those whom the Lord calls. But notice that David isn't tooting his own horn here, so to speak. He's not boasting about how smart he is, about how strong he is, about how great his strategy was, or how clever he might have been. All he can boast in here is what God has done for him. David didn't save himself. The Lord did. Jehovah did. And this is good news, friends. This is good news for the humble for the downcast, for the hopeless, for the afflicted. Because David has faced severe, hopeless affliction. And he's seen the power of God come to his rescue. So what David is saying here is that whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever situation you might face, however hopeless things might seem from your perspective, humble yourself. And in faith, call on the name of the Lord and He will surely hear you and answer you. David is confident in this and thus he continues to issue an invitation now not only to God's people who have been brought low and near to God, but now also he extends it to those who are far off. Look at verses 8-10 to with me. He says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and hunger and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. The person who has drawn near. The person who has truly seen and experienced the salvation that is found in the Lord wants others to see it and to experience it for themselves as well. This part of the psalm should force us to ask ourselves, do, do we want those who are far away from God? Do we want the unregenerate, the unconverted, the proud who don't know God because they don't know Jesus do we want them to know Jesus? Do we want them to come to God through faith in Jesus? How much does your heart resemble David's heart here? Because David is showing us why he's called a man after God's own heart. He wants those who are far off to draw near. And so this invitation is to them. 
Look at the imperatives he uses here. Kind of interesting combination of imperatives. In verse 8, taste, see. Verse 9, fear. Now, that might strike you as kind of strange. Kind of strange to, to, to see somebody use those three imperatives in sequence together. I mean, those words just typically don't fit together. Uh, If something is to be feared, uh, in our minds, it's to be avoided. If something is to be feared, we would normally say, run, right? Get out of there. We don't say, uh, come, if there's something to fear. if, If there's something to fear, we would normally say, don't taste, don't see. But there's no other way to draw near to God, and there is no other response that God requires before fearing Him. What we see throughout Scripture is that when a person realizes that they are in the presence of God, they are afraid. They fear. Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You'll remember an encounter that Jesus had with with Peter, where Peter just crumples like a dry leaf at Jesus' feet, and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. If you are to draw near to God, you must be humbled. You must come respectfully. You must come reverently. You must come carefully, cautiously. And you must come fearfully. Taste and see, David says. This is a personal invitation to those who are far off to draw near and experience God firsthand. Not to just kind of catch a glimpse and and, stay in the in the distance it's a call to come close and know god truly and intimately and savingly and thus find complete satisfaction in him he doesn't say here's what he doesn't say he doesn't say taste and figure it out for yourself taste and and see what you think about it that's not what he says no he's confident that anyone and everyone who draws close to god There is no denying His goodness for such a person. The person who does this will find God to be a refuge unto them in times of trouble. But you must draw close to experience it. In Gath, David was afraid of man. That was ultimately what his fear was. He was experiencing the fear of man, which is a terrible, terrible thing. But that's what that was his situation. He was afraid of man when he went before King Ashish. He was afraid of being recognized as the same guy who killed the mighty Goliath on the battlefield. And even though David came up with this unique plan of feigning insanity, the reality is that nobody could prevent the king, King Ashish, from recognizing him as David except God. Somebody had to blind the king's eyes. Who could do that? Only God. Only God could prevent the king from recognizing him. So ultimately, David learned that he had no one and nothing to fear except God. You don't need to fear man if you fear God. You don't need to fear anything 
if you fear God rightly. One of the great benefits of fearing the Lord is discovering this truth. Is discovering that there's none to fear but the Lord and that those who fear Him rightly, as David says here, will lack no good thing. For to those who fear Him, there is no want, David says. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. And that's reminiscent of Psalm 23 where David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So to illustrate this, David uses the lions of the field. He points out that lions, the, the kings of the jungle, the top of the, of the food chain out in the wilderness, that they would grow hungry and that they would experience lack before God's people do. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And of course, James would say, sometimes we have not because we ask not. The point is, God provides. He provides for those who fear Him. He provides for those who come before Him humbly. He provides for those who ask. And so therefore, David continues to urge those who would listen Whether they're close, whether they're far, he continues to urge them to come and to learn this fear of the Lord. Look at verses 11 to 14 with me. He writes, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now there are a lot of people out there who would say something like this. They'd say, I believe in a higher power or a higher being. I believe in in some kind of God who is only loving and whom I need not fear. But Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 make it clear that God's people must fear Him. There God said to the Israelites, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? Notice that it starts with that. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Do you see the connection there? Do you see the connection that's drawn between fearing the Lord and walking in obedience to His precepts? See, David wanted his audience to understand that the fear of the Lord, it's more than just a condition of the heart. It's more than just something that's happening in our, in our minds. Rather, it's, 
an understanding of who God is, and it's such an understanding of who, who God is that it changes a person's behavior. It changes their actions and sets them on the road of peace and blessing with God. We read in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the beginning. It's the starting line. It's where the journey begins. In other words, the fear of the Lord is the starting place if we are to find peace and reconciliation with God. David points out that this fear involves a response. Look at the, look at the, the fruit that this root bears. Look at the results of the fear of the Lord. Keeping your tongue from evil, David says. Departing from it and doing good. Seeking peace and pursuing it. These are the fruit of of the root, the root being the fear of God. All these qualities are or should be characteristic of a person who truly and rightly fears God. And now as we come to the, to the final passage of this psalm, David speaks of the benefits and the blessings that the Lord will bestow on those who fear Him. Look at verses 15 to 18 with me. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his, his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now between here, between verses 15 and 21, the focus kind of shifts. The focus is now primarily on the righteous. That's a term that we see four times in, in this uh, larger section, verses 15 to 21. We see it in verse 15, we see it in verse 17, then we see it in verse 19, and we see it in verse 21. So the focus here is really shifting to those who are taking His advice, heeding His pleas, and are fearing the Lord. We see a comparison between those people, the, the righteous and the wicked, in verses 15 to 18. David says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, but that the face of the Lord is against evildoers. There's a contrast there, a comparison and a contrast there. His ears are open to the cries of the righteous, but his foes will be defeated so soundly they'll soon be forgotten. Unlike the false pagan gods and idols who were distant, who were removed, who were ambivalent about humanity. God, Jehovah, draws near to the humble, to the brokenhearted, to the crushed, to those who fear Him. And He loves His people enough to discipline and to humble them in order that they may Know and live by the fear of the Lord. The, the Hebrew word here for crushed means beaten out or pulverized. It, it describes the way that God's truth and righteousness as revealed in His perfect Word condemns us and convicts us and confronts us in our sin, which puts us, puts us in a place where all we can do is confess. All we can do is confess our sin and thereby receive cleansing, grace, mercy. It is only, it is only the broken who will be made whole. And it is only the humble, those who fear the Lord, who are fit 
for the presence of the Lord. So what is it that will teach us to fear God and to walk humbly before Him? Everything will. Everything will. God is causing all things to work for the good of those who are called according to His purposes. All things, including the trials and afflictions we face. Let's look at verses 19 to 22. David writes, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. There goes the prosperity gospel. Do you hear it? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Really, what do they do with that? If you believe that the righteous are never afflicted, and that's something that gets taught, what do you do with this? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Friends, the way that we learn, the way that we experience the Lord's sovereign providence and protection is by fire. Is by fire. Though we may suffer many afflictions, suffering and affliction does not mean that you lack faith. It does not mean that you are unrighteous. What it's telling us here is that God loves you. You're one of His. You are one of the righteous. And though we may suffer many afflictions, there is not a single trial, there is not a single affliction that God will not get us through and deliver us from, including death. There's not one that He will not use for His glory and for our good. Knowing that, living by that, should change absolutely everything for us, friends. Everything. It it bolsters us. It strengthens our faith to see this happen if you live through it. To see it happening in our lives. To see it happening in the lives of our fellow saints. When we see them delivered from an affliction, from a trial, from a hardship, and to come out with a more resolute, strengthened faith, that has a way of strengthening our faith too. This psalm really ends with the gospel. It ends with the good news that, that nobody who takes refuge in God will be condemned. Nobody who takes refuge in God will be condemned. And the fact that those who don't take refuge in God will be condemned should serve at least three purposes. First of all, it should cause us to regularly examine ourselves to ensure that we have taken refuge in Him by grace through faith. Secondly, it should cause us to desire that those around us would take refuge in Him also, that they may receive grace rather than condemnation. And third, it should cause our hearts to be filled with thanksgiving for all that God has done to save us. To save us not only from the fear of man. To save us not only from the fear of our enemies. To save us not only from the fear of death. To save us not only from God Himself. From His wrath. To save us from the fear of condemnation. 
we should be thankful for all these things. These things are all blessings bestowed only upon God's people. Believing in God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only way to find refuge in God. It's the only way to escape the fear of condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the way to find refuge in God. You must believe in Him. Do you want that assurance that you have no condemnation? Do you want to be free from the fear of God's wrath? Then you must fear the God who sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, to bear God's wrath against all the sins of those who would believe on Him. If you want to stand before God, free from condemnation, you need to stand before Him free from sin. You need to stand before Him pure and righteous as He is pure and righteous. The good news is that that's what we receive in Christ Jesus. The good news is that Jesus took the sin of His people and He brought it upon Himself. And the Father crushed Him in our place. The world will forsake you. They will refuse to help you. They'll just keep on walking despite your cries. But throughout history, whenever anyone has truly and in faith called on the name of the Lord, God has intervened in powerful, glorious ways. He not only takes our sin away from us, but He transfers His own perfect righteousness to us. It's like having a bank account where some, somebody transfers a huge sum of money to your account so that you can pay a debt. It's paid, it's gone, it's dealt with, it's done. So there's a, a double imputation here. There's, there's our debt being imputed to Christ, and there's His righteousness being imputed to us, which is what's necessary for us to stand before the Lord free from the fear of condemnation. And it's a free gift for those who will believe in Christ. Whenever somebody has done this, God has intervened in powerful and glorious ways to save them. God is more than sufficient in His power to meet any and every need we have. And our first need is to have God's grace. The blessing of God's deliverance is not so much from hard times. It's not from trials it's not from afflictions, although God does certainly comfort us and strengthen us in those times. The greater blessing is found as God uses our afflictions to deliver us from the snares of the world, to deliver us from being lost in this world's sin and darkness. That's the lesson that David learned in Gath. He learned that the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ Himself, encamps around and is near to his people, and he saves them. He learned that when you fear God, there's nothing else that you need to fear. God reigns. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over life and death. He's with his people. He's for his people. He's near his people. The only response then is to fear him, to trust him, to taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we do thank you that you sent your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life, a life that we did not and could not live, but a life that you require in order to be in your presence. And you sent Jesus to live that unblemished, that sinless life. And we thank you that he died the death that we deserve to die. We thank you that in him we have refuge from your wrath. We have refuge from fear. We have refuge from condemnation. We thank you, O Lord, that your son bore the penalty that we deserved. And we thank you that you have drawn us near to, to him by your grace, through faith in him alone. We pray, O Lord, that our heart would resemble David here. That we would desire to walk humbly before you. And that we would desire that those who are far from you would be drawn near. So teach us, O Lord, to be a light in this darkness for the glory of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.